This is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Burnett. Two topics for you this week. Later, we'll dive into the coverage of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's whirlwind media tour as he promises that changes are finally coming to his platform. But first, the country's hottest young political star has recently found herself in hot water. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shocked the political and media establishments by unseating New York City Congressman Joe Crowley in the Democratic primary back in June. That all but ensured that she will represent New York's 14th congressional district next session. Last week, the Queen's Chronicle reported that Ocasio-Cortez had barred reporters from attending town hall meetings with her prospective constituents. This sparked criticism from many who felt that blocking reporters from public events amounted to an almost Trumpian media approach. But some agreed with Ocasio-Cortez, who said that she didn't want the presence of reporters to intimidate her potential constituents from speaking openly. Here to discuss that with me is Emily Bell, director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia. Emily, great to have you back. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be back. What did you make of the pretty widespread criticism, at least initially, that Ocasio-Cortez faced after this news broke? Well, initially, and you know, I, I ignored my own advice here and got into a, tw- a Twitter argument at the weekend. Um, <laughs> so it's August. There's nothing. It's else to August. Do. There's nothing else to do apart from fight with randos on Twitter. Um, so my initial reaction was one of disappointment and uh, low-level alarm, which says, uh, "Here we have a situation where." A perhaps you know the brightest star currently in the progressive movement and you know a large part of uh, American politics has said that for two meetings which were otherwise public, so this is a critical point, um, the press uh, were not invited because she wanted to create an environment where people felt safe and able to speak about difficult issues. So my initial reaction to that was this is an unfortunate misstep, charitably speaking, or, you know, it's actually a very troubling sign for the press when you have candidates from right across the political spectrum beginning to say, you know what, public discourse and political meetings are better off without journalists at them. You know, as a journalist, it's really important that you defend the right of your colleagues to go to uh, press conferences Um, and actually you were saying it becomes almost Trumpian I mean in fairness to Donald Trump he's never excluded the press from his meetings in fact quite the opposite he obviously likes to corral them then intimidate and make fun and kind of rile up crowds against them but that kind of that discourse which says Journalists don't really improve things. In fact, sometimes they can make them worse when it comes to um, political communications and civic discourse in the public sphere. That's a kind of a worrying trend. Right. I mean, I do think that there were a couple instances, both on the campaign and since he's been in office, where Trump or his press secretary has said to certain outlets, you aren't allowed. Yeah, of course, that's that's right. So, in fact, you you are right, I'm wrong on this one, which is... <laughs> it happens once it, a week. It happens, yeah. happens often. Um, it, it, that, that when he got to, uh, I think most recently, saying we're not going to have CNN in a Rose Garden briefing, you know, right. we're going to single out individual outlets and say they're not welcome or we're only going to have... 
you know, One American News and Fox News, and it's going to become a partisan press pool. Um, and actually, sort of, I changed my mind about Ocasio-Cortez. I don't think she did the right thing. Um, well, I think you're, you can't change your mind after you've already been in arguments with people on Twitter. I know, I know. This is terrible, isn't it? When, you're ch- when your mind is changed by arguments. It wasn't really changed by the arguments on Twitter, but I, I thought about it more. And also, I think because it troubled me, I did that thing that journalists should do when they're troubled by things, which is, you know, do more research, ring some people up, um, do some reporting on it yourself. And I don't think she was right, and I do think it's a, a, a problematic um, stance to take. I think there were all sorts of mitigating circumstances here, not least that actually the press were not banned as such. I, my belief is that the meetings were live-streamed, so actually people could see them. Um, I thought that there was something you know, disingenuous in a way about her reasoning for it when she said, I want people to feel safe. You know, it's, it, it is quite reckless to tell people that they are safe at a public meeting because journalists are not there everybody now can report you know you, you from any meeting if you, you know we we know from our friend Omar, well she's not our friend but um from Omar Rosa at the White House you don't have to be a member of the press to record or um reveal things about a meeting and particularly kind of you know in charge political circumstances but I, there was something actually which an Ocasio Cortez said this herself on Twitter Later, later in the weekend, which was, you know, she was like, I don't mean to sort of tread on press freedom or anything, but I am genuinely interested in how we can have a different temperature of conversation around different topics and, you know, help me think about how we can do this in a better way. And I do have great sympathy for her wanting to create an environment where the discourse is more constructive. And there is something that happens when local stories now become not just national, but international stories very rapidly. Yeah, and Ocasio-Cortez is in a pretty unique position for a congressional candidate. As you mentioned, she's the hottest young star in the political firmament. And this is not the sort of meeting that would usually draw a ton of attention, a lot of cameras. And that does. When there's cameras there, especially she mentioned specifically the issue of immigration, that a lot of her potential constituents are immigrants in the areas of the Bronx and Queens that she represents. Um, And so there's certainly some amount of logic potentially, I guess, to what Mm. she's saying. But at the same time, I could have walked in there. Yeah without yeah. declaring myself a I, member of the press I, and then taking notes or recorded the, th- the I, I meeting. Think it's, I think it's understandable without necessarily being defensible. That's um, a really good distinction. And, and actually, I think that it's interesting as well that there is this sort of attitude which is it's an all or nothing in terms of the press pool. So, you know, it is not, you know, it is Trumpian maybe to tier press, but I don't think it's inappropriate to say this is a local event and we're inviting local press. Um, and we're going to ask the press to be very respectful of people's, you know, right to speak and right to talk about issues that are important to them. You know, the Queen's Chronicle, which has about, I think, 400,000 readers in, you know, her uh, constituency, they were the organisation that actually reported this first. And if I was her, I would really want local press involved in and reporting on my campaign and using that kind of, you know, relationship with them and with, you know, local people to build a sort of a a, a different discourse. But the idea that you can't say, well, look, let's have, you know, 
in other circumstances, you might have a pool arrangement, right? That's, yeah, we use this all the time with it traveling with the president, the with the secretary of state, whoever. Happens all the time. And there is this thing which is like, who does she think she is? She's not the president. <laughs> but she is somebody trying to hold a meaningful kind of gathering in a smaller space with 10,000 press there and 40 constituents who might be spooked or just not want to turn up because it feels too much like a circus. So I think that, you know, kind of I'm she's been given a pass by lots of people and, and many people have made the point, well, you know, she gets her funding from her supporters. Uh, she doesn't have corporate fundraising. When people have corporate fundraisers or big donors, they have private meetings with them or they have meetings with them and they don't invite the press and that's okay. So, you know, maybe she's just doing that and isn't that all right too? But it, 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 I think what it does is it's, it's beginning to make us think more carefully about, you know, what a public space really is now and what, you know, the kind of the virality and intensity of the current political moment does for political communications. And it's a challenge for politicians and it's a challenge actually for journalists to navigate that new space. Um, I was reading a really great new report by BBC journalist Mark Frankel, who did it as part of his Neiman Fellowship up at Harvard, on reporting on closed groups. And he was making the point that, you know, nowadays so much discourse actually happens in these closed groups on social platforms that actually the press aren't part of and navigating your way into them, what the etiquette is. So so when Ocasio-Cortez was asking the question, how can we have a different kind of discourse? You know, one answer, you know, you, you find a completely different kind of campaigning and um, connection to constituents through these small closed groups on things like WhatsApp, uh, Facebook groups, etc. And it made me think, actually, I sort of was really thinking about that issue of how likely we are to see campaigns like Ocasio-Cortez's and other politicians move from, you know, just physical spaces into cyber and smaller groups, which actually are very difficult to access or parse for um, the press in a traditional way. Well, and her actual campaign was a little bit of that, right? She was covered by mostly progressive outlets, but as we talked about on this podcast and not CJR, ignored by a lot of the mainstream press. And so she's gone from an environment where she's being covered by The Intercept and Splinter and some local outlets to now Fox News is focused on her and NBC wants to talk to her. And it, that transition, if again, if we're being charitable, there's some, it's understandable on some level that some missteps might occur well, and also she's had a ferocious gotcha campaign aimed at her from the right. You know, there's there's no two there's, there are no two ways about it. Um, you know that that she's had interviews of with her edited in um, ways that make her appear to be saying things that she's not and presented as satire in inverted commas. It's clear that there is a hyper partisan press which is um, out to undermine her campaign. So in her position, she's a 28-year-old woman who has is a relative novice to all of this. You know, It's incredibly hard to keep your head together when you're in that kind of eye of the storm. And actually, 
you know, it, it's interesting as well because we have, through Trump, become used to thinking about this as a trope of the right. You know, the mainstream media is terrible. Fake news media is terrible. But it's also something on the far left. Well, and not even on the far left, but sort of center left. So just recently we have Bill de Blasio sort of right. tearing chunks out of um, the New York Daily News and the New York Post publicly, which I was really surprised by because actually there are not many... Whatever you think of their politics and the way they present it, there are newsrooms there that actually cover, you know, the daily um, happenings to, you know, New York citizens in a way that not many other newsrooms do. And de Blasio was, was you know, he, he uses kind of, you know, the, the, the phrase as well, the corporate media. And, you know, there is a tradition, if you like, of... You know, when you think about sort of, you know, the left and you think about the Obama presidency, which feels in hindsight very warm and fuzzy towards the press, of course, wasn't at all during um, his actual tenure there. Uh, it was pretty distant from the press. Uh, the press pool didn't have much access. Even on his campaigns, they were quite physically restricted from access. He used a lot of direct media, Instagram accounts, having his own photographer, etc. Um, and leak prosecutions. And the leak prosecution. So it's also not, you know, don't, don't just sort of look at the image and the warm words. Also look at how were off-the-record briefings and leakers treated. And, you know, under the um, Obama administration, we saw a real spike in uh, punishment for people who spoke to the press in an unauthorised way or who leaked, um, who leaked things. So it is a bipartisan issue, this kind of low-level hostility towards right. the press. And maybe, you know, for journalists, that's not such a bad thing. You know, we used to be sort of shot by both sides. But in another sense, it is, I think, troubling because it is part of this pattern that says journalism isn't really to be trusted. We are to be trusted. You know, the politicians, they are getting in our way, etc. And, of course, you know, most of what we know about the policies of uh, Trump and how they're playing out, a great deal of what we know about the implementation of the executive orders on family separations, etc., has come from reporters and reporting and politicians of all, all across the spectrum. Unfortunately, you know, it's really important that they recognise you can't pick the press you want. The moment you start picking the press you want is the moment that you end up with an unfree press and you know it, it it's it, it's so unhealthy in the long term but i th but i think it's, it's something we're going to see much more of and we're going to have to sort of negotiate if you like that ground i think much more uh, aggressively than we have in the past Shifting gears for our second topic, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has been on a whirlwind media tour over the past few weeks, speaking with everyone from BuzzFeed to the New York Times to Sean Hannity. He's been attempting to paint his company as one ready to change after hearing concerns from users and members of the media about everything from harassment to hate speech to misinformation. Here he is with CNN's Brian Stelter this past Sunday. It sounds like you are willing and ready and willing to rebuild the entire house, to renovate everything. We're ready to question everything. I mean, I, I, we've changed so much in Twitter over the past 12 years, and I know it doesn't always feel that way, but we've, we've changed a lot, but we haven't changed the underlying fundamentals. We haven't changed some of the incentives that we probably took for granted because they were easy when we built it. Um, and they felt obvious when they built it, but it may not be relevant today. So, Emily, as someone who 
spends a lot of time thinking about the platforms and the way they intersect with media and journalism and just the way we consume information. What do you make of Dorsey's recent press tour? Well, I'm actually a bit of a Jack Dorsey fan, which I think makes me um, unusual. In I feel like a lot of journalists actually love Twitter because we use it so much, so maybe we're more willing to forgive him than I mean, Zuckerberg. I, you know, I... I I think he does think about these. He's not always right on these things, and he, he does think about them, um, I think, quite deeply. And journalists are Twitter super users. Right. You know, they are, uh, and I've heard uh, Jack himself say, from day one, the professional kind of cadre of journalists on there have really been a kind of a glue that have held the whole thing together. So it's interesting now that he's under pressure to perform a more journalistic function himself which is something you know some of us have been obsessed with for ages <laughs> which is as as these big companies step into the shoes of huge kind of publishers they're going to be asked to make some difficult calls and of course Alex Jones being I don't think it's that difficult actually I think it's in we can get into like why I think this is a mountain out of a molehill so you know kind of the the, the political pressure though on Facebook and uh, Twitter is pretty significant you know the right is uh, annoyed that they are seen as being partisan or at least too liberal and they're pretty adept at ramping up the pressure on these platforms and the leadership of these platforms both Zuckerberg and Dorsey are not really used to that kind of pressure so yes they've been around for a while for a decade or so but that kind of direct pressure from the center of government saying you know uh, as Donald Trump said I would rather have the fake news media than social media platforms editing what we see and censoring what we see once it gets reached it's the megaphone of the Trump kind of base, then you know that actually he is going to have to kind of respond to and think about and be public about these things. So the fact that he's meditating on it in public, I think is a good thing. Yeah, it seems like Twitter, Facebook, everybody has spent going on a decade trying to avoid these sort of conversations. And now you see Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg working through them, often in public. Uh, he says that Twitter has changed a lot over the past decade or so. I've been hearing the same complaints from journalists and others about harassment, about trolling, um, about, on some level, just bad faith actors. You mentioned the campaign by some on the right to say, we're being shadow banned, which yes. they're not being shadow banned. But yeah. uh, you have these non-political figures, these Silicon Valley creatures, now stepping into both an editorial position, a political position, and do you trust that he is willing to make the changes necessary? Or is, he, is it even possible for Twitter to make the sort of changes necessary to deal with some of the questions that people are raising about harassment? I I, that's an excellent question, which is can, can they even do it? Do they even know what they are anymore? <laughs> you know, and, and your point, Pete, about this being a converged platform where there's all types of conversation is exactly right you know when 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 you look at we look at facebook and twitter as through a sort of journalistic lens um but they are big advertising platforms they deal with governments they deal with uh um corporations and they and they are close to those entities they're not journalistic you know it's like saying would you trust the cia to sort out discourse or you know that's maybe a little bit uncharitable um so I don't know is the answer whether they will ever actually effectively do it. I think that weirdly Twitter in a way because it has a smaller user base could make more 
progress, perhaps, than Facebook in this area. Um, but one thing that Dorsey's going to have to, I think, get over is this idea that he can create a set of principles or rules that are in some way not personal or not reflective of the culture in the company and implement them in a way which is fair to everybody. And he's actually said, I don't want this just to be our personal opinions pushing and pulling, a, you know. And when it comes to something like Alex Jones, there is actually a kind of a, a, a tradition or, you know, at Twitter, we've seen the leadership make individual personal decisions before, which actually people would not have disagreed with. So, yeah, you mentioned when we were talking earlier, the example of James Foley. So James Foley, uh, the journalist who was beheaded by ISIS and a, a grim video of it circulated uh, across social media and particularly on Twitter, um, the CEO at the time, Dick Costolo, came out and said, I want any account which is circulating this shut down. I don't care whether it doesn't um, breach our terms of service, which were hopelessly brought at the time. Um, and I don't care what the free speech considerations are. I don't want it on the platform. It, it should be gone. And in my memory, I think that was the first time a chief executive of a platform had said, I'm calling it now. You know, this is what we're doing. And I'm not kind of going to debate it. It's gone. To me, the moment that the swivelized kind of conspiracy theorists that follow Alex Jones started harassing families at Sandy Hook was the moment when you say to Alex Jones, I'm really sorry, you may not have intended this, but we cannot have our brand and our platform, <laughs> you know, kind of polluted with this kind of association. That doesn't seem to me like a particularly hard call to make. Where we tie ourselves in knots is saying, but everybody should have a platform. It's like, that's not really what the principle of free speech is. You well, know. and Twitter and Facebook are privately owned companies. Private. They are not the town square, although I guess well, we're getting so, debates so about that too. Yeah, so, so, so there is an argument that says these companies are now so big that they are a de facto town square. And there is something which links this call for a kind of an economic regulation, a new antitrust, to some of the arguments about free speech and um, regulation of content on the platforms, which is when you lack plurality, so in other words, when everybody gets their news and interacts with each other through about three different portals, is, it, is that enough? Do we actually need a kind of greater plurality in those? So when Jack Dorsey makes a decision that he's going to ban somebody from his platform, or Mark Zuckerberg shut somebody down. Um, it's okay, it's just one of many different outlets because it's always been the case that publishers can choose what not to publish. That's a free, you know, that is a freedom too. You know, you are not compelled to publish or host everything. Right. Now, you bring up the Alex Jones example, and in that case, Twitter is kind of the outlier among the platforms. They've decided not to ban Jones, although they did put him in timeout recently. Um, I, I mean, I just think that this whole mess is sort of indicative of how difficult it's been for them to become a more editorial company, even though that is what they actually have to do. I was going to say, this is something you've been banging on about for years. You know, I have, this I have. Yeah, but thank you for noticing, Pete. I, <laughs> well, it seems exactly like they are noticing the right as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, it's inevitable. We, like, there were, it's not just me. There are lots of scholars who've looked at this for a long time, for decades even, and said, or for as long as Twitter and long as Facebook have existed, and said, you know, th this is changing the nature of the news 
environment, the information ecosystem, and who controls it, and these are new gatekeepers. And what does that really mean? And, you know, they have resisted that role for good legal reasons. They get protections under the Communications Decency Act 1996, which says you don't have to take, you're not liable for things that sit on your platform. Um, Their lawyers tell them, well, if you start to take an interest in and make editorial calls on what's on your platform, you no longer have a case to say that you're not liable for everything else. And that's a disaster for us, potentially. But, you know, ironically, it's also a disaster for them if they don't. So we've seen what's happened to the Facebook share price when it has left uh, issues of curation and... Um, really sort of even just basic curiosity about what is going on on its platform in in relation to political communications, 25% off their share price for not addressing some of those issues earlier. And I think that this is interesting that sort of Jack Dorsey is doing this tour now, sort of after Zuckerberg, after Zuckerberg's share price has fallen off the face of a cliff. Because it's a business problem. You know, this isn't just a civic problem. This is a business problem for them now as well. So I was listening back to an interview we did shortly after Trump was inaugurated when some of the stuff was coming out about Facebook and the Russian use of the platform and Mark Zuckerberg was apologizing. And I asked you if you were optimistic that they would be able to work their way through this and make the changes necessary to address those issues. I'll ask the same thing about Twitter now that Jack Dorsey is on his. What did I say? You said <laughs> so I say you gave yes, a mixture of you. you. Good. Okay. You That's... said it's good that they're talking about it, yeah. but I don't think they have the answers or something. No. Like well, that. I think that I think we're still in that stage. Actually, I mean, actually, sort of a lot is happening. You know, that that that, that um, can Twitter mend itself? Um, there's always going to be an element of Twitter which is the wild west and which is chaotic. I mean, Jack Dorsey is not wrong. It has changed a lot since the early days. And there are lots of people who lament the fact that it is now a kind of weaponized propaganda machine, uh, you know, that it isn't as intimate or easy to have those conversations of value as it was before. And this relates to actually, you know, our conversation about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, you know, how big is a public meeting before it becomes unuseful? You know, there is a phrase, uh, which is sadly not my phrase, which is scale breaks conversation. And I think that, you know, what Jack Dorsey is dealing with now is a product of his own uh, design, which is trying to scale conversation to encompass, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And by not really thinking through what breaks or the timeouts or the, the the friction that you want to introduce into that system to help conversation at the outset of the design means that you're now you've now got a, a hell of a job to actually sort of re-engineer your product. We heard Brian Stelter saying are you willing to do a gut renovation of this? Because because it is actually in the heart of the design of the products, both on Facebook and Twitter, that this is all about sort of people's freedom to post and say and do almost anything. And a lot of the problems are about the lack of imagination within those companies about what that would really mean. You know, the worst case scenario modeling was clearly um, way too optimistic. They should have got some New Yorkers to do instead of all those Californians. <laughs> we would have we would have got to the problem. Or even even some British people. Oh, some British people. We would have said, well, we would have said, 
you, you might want to think about <laughs> what happens when the Russians um, meddle with your election. So, so yes, I mean, I think that um, they are addressing it. Can they fix it? There is no fix. You know, do we have a perfect mainstream media? No. You know, the, the, the world of communication and connectivity has always been super messy. Um, and we have some great, in, in particular America, you have some great broad principles about everybody having a say about protection from government interference, all of that sort of stuff. But there's, but it's always been a chaotic field. And I think that that chaos is just moving into these uh, organisations that thought that they had an engineering answer to everything. And they, do, and they don't have an engineering answer to this. Emily, thanks so much for being back. Thank and you, Pete. Always lovely enjoy to be, this. Lovely to be here in my own office. <laughs> That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Thanks, as always, to Emily Bell for lending us her office space and her time. Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjro.org, and we'll see you next week. 